glory forever and ever. Amen. So my wife's dad, a few months ago we found out he had cancer and was in the hospital being treated. And my wife does this thing, we have five kids, and as we're, she's driving along, she prays and has them pray. And so Judah, our youngest, was praying for Grandpa. And so he prayed, please, 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 God, please save Grandpa. Please, please, please save Grandpa. And Joel, our eight-year-old, our middle son, uh, finally goes, Judah! Too many pleases, not enough grandpas. <laughs> I, I don't know if you've ever had people coach you on the best way to pray or how, ways that you're doing it wrong, but this is something that Christians do. We, we pray. Uh, we pray for a lot of people. We're supposed to pray for our family, our friends, and our enemies, which should be just about everybody. Um, although there is one person who we will not pray for. Uh, Doug, if you could put this picture up. What will we never do? Pray for Doug. <laughs> this is one of my favorite pictures of all. I have no idea what Doug did, but he is off our list. This is a real church sign that they put up without thinking about, I guess. <laughs> it's one of those slow burns, right? So everybody prays. I've walked alongside people who have lost their faith who no longer believe in God uh, for a couple of decades now. And, and I'll ask them, do you ever accidentally pray and almost to a person? The answer is yes. But why? Why do we pray? And does it do anything? The majority of people in America pray every day. Leslie and I have been to uh, Sri Lanka and we've seen um, these little statues outside of homes that people put money in and their prayers in. I've seen people pray in the Wailing Wall at Israel. Um, and I was in Egypt in Jordan and heard the Muslim call to prayer a few times every day. Every different culture all around the world, people pray. So how do you pray? And how do you know that you're doing it right? That's what I want to talk about. We're in a series called Preaching What We Practice. And this one is a strange one. Because while every church around the world, under mango trees and in cathedrals and in strip malls, every church is gathered together and praying today, there is a part of prayer that is undermined by its public practice. Now, we obviously are going to do this every time we gather. We're going to pray. But prayer is so much more than just the public practice. And the reason I have to say this is because there is a subtle temptation. If you grew up in church, or if you've been at a church for a while, to think that's what prayer is. And that is not the way of Jesus. As in literally, as in like in the Bible itself, Jesus didn't do that. That's not how Jesus lived and not how he taught the people who followed him. To live. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 6. You're going to hear from the words of Jesus today. In Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5, Jesus says to people who want to follow him, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites or the people who just act. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. And don't catch that? The reason they do it is to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've already received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and close the door and pray to your Father 
who is unseen. If you're praying to be seen, you're not allowing yourself to be seen by the one who is watching. If you're praying so that people around will be like, wow, do you see how great they are at prayer? Do you see how eloquent they are? Do you see how they just always summarize? If you're praying for that reason, then you have missed the real reason. Because your Father who is watching, your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now Jesus is assuming there is a reward for prayer. But it's probably not the one we think. And he says, don't pray like other people where they babble, they go on and on, and they think, if I just get the words right, if I, if I say enough, God will have... See, back in Jesus' day, people would do this. They would go on and on. And this is the human condition, like the prophets of Baal. They would cut themselves and they, and they would pray for hours. But Baal's not real. Baal's not there. Jesus seems to think... Your heavenly Father already knows what you want. So God is not up in heaven being like, now, what was her name again? What hospital room was that? How much does that car cost? And that may raise a question for you. Well, then, why would we pray? And Jesus has great news for you. This, I'm not trying to be snarky. This really is good news. You've been praying wrong. And if, you, if you're asking that question, Jesus has some great answers for you. So Jesus says, instead, pray like this. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now when Jesus says Father, that is a word that means both respect and intimacy. It's a lot like the word Daddy. In this culture it means someone who cares for you and has your best interest in mind. And maybe the harder word for us to understand in this is not Father, but are. As in like, when I pray, I'm aware that, that I'm not the only one praying. I'm a part of a global community of brothers and sisters who God cares about. And that God is watching all of this. And um, he, he's, he cares for us. That He knows what I need and what I want. And then Jesus takes us to the part that is the hardest for us to pray if we know what it is we're praying. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Your will, not my will. Not what I want. Not what I am after. Your will be done. This is the part of the prayer that's the hardest for us. But honestly, in hindsight, you're glad that this is the nature of God. When I was a teenager, I dated Ashley, my first girlfriend. At least my first girlfriend that other people could see as well. And at the end of every night, I would get on my knees on the side of my bed and I would pray very, you know, very much like the pagans. Lots of words. You know, whatever would work. You know, like Talladega Nights. Jesus, Oprah, you know, whoever. Give me the, just give me this one thing. Please, God, help Ashley marry me. 
And then God did not answer that prayer. And I'm very grateful in hindsight that he did not. There's a, a, a Saint, uh, Saint Teresa of Avila who said, more tears are shed over answered prayers than unanswered ones. Also, St. Gartha Brooks would later say that. (laughs) But sometimes we pray with the assumption that we know what's best. But in the Bible, sometimes the worst thing that God can do is give someone what they want. In other words, Jesus is not saying this is a genie in the bottle and if you do it the right way, you'll get wishes or whatever. Um, But Jesus is giving us His personal prayer. Do you know that? When he teaches us to pray like this, this is the way Jesus prayed. This is why the Lord's Prayer is such a big deal to followers of Jesus. Because he prays this. He practices this prayer. In fact, later on in this gospel, when Jesus is going to die on a cross, preparing for that, he prays this prayer. Look at this in Matthew chapter 26. He takes some of his disciples away. He's sorrowful. He's troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And then going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. And yet, not as I will, but as you will. He's going to be left all alone facing the most darkest hour imaginable and he prays this prayer when he hits rock bottom. I think Jesus was having what we would today call a panic attack as he's facing this. The word, the Greek word that's used to describe what's going on with Jesus here is the word agon. Let me hear you say agon. It's where we get agony from. It actually means wrestling. He is struggling here because he is bending his will to the will of God. That's what it means to pray. Your will, your kingdom come. And he's preparing, he has been preparing for what is about to happen to him. Which is not just wanton violence, it's lots and lots of shame. And that's what I want you to see today. Because Jesus is about to be stripped naked. He's going to be mocked for almost a full day. The Gospels don't really emphasize the violence of the cross. They do the shame of the cross. Because people are going to insult and make fun of Jesus for a full day. Shame is a really good way to get human beings to not do something. And Rome had shame down to an art. They they, They let people know what happened if you crossed a line. And so Jesus is constantly getting away from the crowds to spend some time in prayer. Which raises the question, what does Jesus know that I don't? That you don't? So, back to what Jesus said. He says, when you pray, do it in secret. Why? Because you need to constantly have a rhythm in your life that reminds you that God is watching If you do stuff for other people to see, if you're always doing stuff for other people to see, you are not able to pray well because to pray is to be seen by God, to slowly over time become aware of the presence and the gaze of God on your life. There's not a hair on your head that He doesn't count. There's not a sparrow that falls to the ground that He doesn't notice. But if you are so busy trying to get your identity from the noise and the people around you, You might be so busy thinking about others that you fail to notice 
that God is noticing you. Jesus got away all the time to pray. In fact, in Luke chapter 5, here's the way Luke says it about Jesus. Yet the news about him spread all the more. He's getting popular here. Crowds of people come to hear him to be healed of his sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Now, that sentence is in the Gospels over and over and over again. But the reason I chose this passage is because just a few verses later, Jesus, the Pharisees are are talking about Jesus and his disciples and they say this. John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours don't. Yours just keep on going, eating and drinking. The Pharisees, the religious people, the people you and I would be the most tempted to let see us pray, don't see Jesus. And that's precisely the point. They think that if they don't see you doing it, it didn't happen. And Jesus thinks it's the main thing that happens. In fact, it is a really good test of whose opinion you think matters and who or what you are giving your life for. Jesus warns us against this. I mean, in the most explicit language Jesus uses, He looks at the religious, churchy people of His day and He says this publicly about them. These people, everything they do is for others to see. They make, this is their clothes, they make them wide and the tassels on their garment long so everybody will see when they walk through, wow, they're holy. They love the places of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to be called rabbi by others. And this is what Jesus calls us to reject. And it honestly, it sounds wonderful. Loving the places of honor, the most important seats, Greeted with respect, to be seen and noticed and loved. But this is what Jesus warns us about. It's a life He calls us to reject. Instead, Jesus is asking us to do something else. He's trying to give us a vision of a life lived primarily before God. A hidden life. Withdrawing from other people's eyes to allow yourself to be seen by God. In fact... This is the best definition of prayer I know. It's not a comprehensive definition, but it's at least a start of a definition of prayer. Prayer is allowing yourself to be seen by only God. So, a few questions just for you to wrestle with. Do you feel like you have a compulsion to do stuff you don't want to do, but others are doing it? Do you feel triggered by the behavior of other people to do certain things um, that society wants you to do without even asking, is this God's will? Listen, there's a lot of different ways and times to do this. Some people pray in the morning, and some of you aren't morning people. Jesus doesn't want to see you early in the morning. Some of you pray in the afternoon, some of you pray in the evening, some of you pray throughout your day, some pray through scriptures, some write it out with words, some pray out loud with words. Uh, There are a lot of different ways to do this, but listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is big. So the question that often comes back is, well, how often should you pray? And great news, I have an answer for you. This is how often Jesus did it. Often. If you're a follower of Jesus, you find out a way to make yourself available to be seen by only God. 
This is the word that is used to describe Jesus' prayer life. Not just in public places and not just at mealtimes. You need, we all need time to let our Heavenly Father's opinion of us sink into our souls. And if we don't have this, if we don't have a sacred rhythm to our life to allow that, then your hearts and souls will be swallowed by secular rhythms. Students and kids. Anybody, basically anybody under 42. Okay? Because that's me. You are growing up in a world that I did not grow up in. Uh, a world where everything's public. So many of my peers, and, and y'all, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but when we get together and we talk about, aren't you so glad there wasn't Facebook and phones when we were teenagers? Yeah, we wouldn't have a job. We have, you know, 200% more of us would be in prison. Like, you are growing up in a world where everything is public. Picks or it didn't happen. And, and, and so you have to post everything. And then you spend hours scrolling on Instagram because you're anxious that your food, the post of what you had for dinner isn't getting enough likes or whatever. But here's what I want you to know. This is really good news. This is new technology, but the same human condition. This is what Jesus is actually talking about. It takes different forms throughout different generations. And this generation, it's, you know, we want fame. We want to be noticed. But here's the thing. Jesus would say, God forbid you get it. Because the same itch that makes you want to be famous is the same itch that will keep you to do anything to avoid shame or embarrassment. And, and when the way of Jesus gets embarrassing or out of step with current you know, societal norms, which generationally, culturally, that always happens. It just changes what the norms are throughout the years. Jesus is telling you a way to follow Him faithfully without anxiety and worry. When you pray, you are drawing down roots into who you really are. Not who your emotions say you are. Not who people think you are. Not how competent in certain skills you are. Not how you look or how much money you have. There is a relentless pressure on you to live public lives. Lives that are seen. Lives that are high visibility. Lives that have a lot of applause. We, you know, the psychology of, of things like likes on social media. Do you know how often a person gets on social media, the average person gets on social media to check their likes after they post? 151 times a day. That's the average. One of the desert fathers, a guy named Abba Paphanidius, was dying. This is about 1,700 years ago. He's dying and he wants to know how... He asked God as he's dying... Are there any holy people in the world today? Would you show me some holy people? And God gave him a vision, according to church tradition, of this. He gave him a vision of three holy men. They were, one, a humble village leader. Two, a powerful merchant and a reformed robber. None of them were monks. And so before he dies, the church father wakes up and tells his monks this. Listen. No one in the world should be despised. Despise nobody. For in every condition of human life, whether you're a banker or a school teacher, there are souls that please God and have their hidden deeds where He takes delight. People celebrate public accomplishments. God tends to celebrate private devotion. 
Saints can be found in every vocation because their lives are not defined by what they do, but who they love. And the temptation for me, and I bet for you, is it's the public place that makes you feel significant. But it's rarely where you're formed. In fact, it's the public places where your formation or lack of formation come out, right? The reason so many people have public failures is because they have private deficits. They, they haven't been able to... Uh, they collapse under the weight of influence because they don't have a foundation of character to sustain it. Listen, I was trying to think through ways this could just make an immediate impact on everybody's life. So let me start here. Sisters... You live in a world where you are constantly being evaluated by your beauty, right? Like, it's just in the culture, it's, it's marketing. Women are used, their, their beauty and sexual appeal is used to sell whatever. I've heard some of my sisters talk about the oppressiveness of the male gaze, that everywhere you go, you're being evaluated by if you're pretty or not pretty. So you're always dressing to please others or thinking about how you're seen. Listen, this is the way the first follower of Jesus, a guy named Peter, says just a few decades after the resurrection as he's trying to think through this. Look at this in 1 Peter. He says, Sisters, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, like what you wear or elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Not that those things are bad, but those are not your source of beauty. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, your unfading, a beauty that does not wrinkle, sag, or get old. A beauty that is a gentle and quiet spirit because it is in great worth, let's all read this together, in God's sight. Because God is watching. You don't have to live for the gaze of other people. Brothers, dads, sons... You are constantly competing with others to prove your worth. Is that getting old? Maybe you feel overwhelmed with life, like there's too many responsibilities and too many people depend on you, or maybe you're apathetic and burnt out. Go to God. Get away from the crowds. Get away from what everybody else is saying about you. Spend some time listening to the voice of God. God is like a father, but fathers are not like Him. Let God tell you where your worth and value come from. Let Him, like He's done throughout, for so many throughout human history, replace where your ambition is aimed and fill you with power. Did you notice that the more successful Jesus was, the more often He got away and withdrew? The more crowds came to Him, the more He withdrew. That is not an accident. It's because Jesus knows the source of His identity, power, and value. And so He lived differently. I heard this uh, pastor in New York refer to this, and it was a movie I had seen. It's a movie by Terrence Malick called A Hidden Life. Um, It is a wonderful movie based on a true story of an Austrian farmer named Franz Jagenstadter. And Franz was committed to resisting the Nazis in World War II. They tried to make him fight. They tried to make him fight as a Nazi, and he would not do it. He was this nobody. He was a peasant of a farmer. But he had this deep conviction, that, uh, and he refused to compromise. And so they arrest him. They're going to kill him. They try him in a Nazi court of law. And at one point, right before the trial, right before he's sent off to be executed, a Nazi officer says to him, Franz, do you think this is going to change anything? 
Do you think you're going to change the course of this war? Do you think that anyone outside this court will ever hear of you? Nothing will be changed. The world will go on as before. You'll just be dead. And Franz replies, A man has only one thing to consider, whether he is acting rightly or wrongly. Because he lived his life of devotion and faithfulness for God. And in that moment, he was confronting the broken value system of his world. And ultimately, he was murdered. That movie is compelling, if you haven't seen it. It's long and artsy and wonderful. But at the end of it is a title. The title comes from a quote by George Eliot about Franz. The growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts. And things that are not so, the, the fact that things are not that bad with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Later on, Franz Jagenstadter was made a martyr by the Christian church. But even if there was no movie made about him, God was watching. Dramatic events get all the attention in our society. But it is the faithful life, the hidden deeds of followers of Jesus that we actually need. Because unhistoric acts create the world we actually need. Father, moms, it's the hidden act of coming home to your kids after a long day and you don't have anything left in the tank, but you sit down and play with them any, anyway that God is watching and loves. It's the hidden life of serving your wife or husband when you're exhausted and overwhelmed or when they're exhausted and overwhelmed when the, that the Father sees and loves. It's the hidden life of taking some time away from everyone to pray when what you really want to do is watch the game. Or catch the latest Netflix thing that the Father loves. It's the hidden life of sacrificial generosity when what you really want to do is buy the next gadget that the Father loves. It's the hidden life of absorbing criticism when what you really want to do is tell them what's wrong with them that the Father loves. I like the way the psalmist says this about prayer. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them, because you, God, are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. He is our refuge, our safe place, and He's watching. Okay, this matters a lot to me because about 12 years ago, I was not in a good place. I mean, on the outside, I was in a great place. I was killing it on social media. I, my career was going great. I had book deals. I had connections. I had potential. I was going all over the world talking to people about Jesus, and I was anxious and bitter. I had addictions nobody knew about. I hated some people. Like, I wanted them to die, hate them. And then I would stand up and talk about Jesus and loving your enemies. And sometimes the people I wanted to die were in the audience and their heads were as big as this. 
I knew how to look smart, and I knew how to sound Christian, and my soul was rotting. Because I was doing what you thought I should do. And I was really good at it. Like, I was really good at it. I was a people pleaser who was really good at pleasing people and really bad about caring about what even, about even caring about what pleased God. I cared a lot about what you thought about me and I could manage what you thought about me. But ultimately, while I could give you what you needed from me, you couldn't give me what I needed from you. Because a hundred compliments would be blown away by one criticism. And then I discovered this. A way to pray that put down roots. For me, it was a way of prayer called contemplative prayer. That doesn't work for everyone. I'm not a very contemplative person, you may have noticed. But it worked for me. But there's a lot of ways to pray. The important thing is to do it with God. To let God alone be the one who sees you. A word for this is solitude. And there's a Catholic priest named Henry Nouwen who says it like this. Solitude is the furnace of transformation. Without solitude, we are victims of our society and continue to be entangled in the illusions of the false self. How we're seen by others. What people think about us. Jesus himself went into this furnace. There he was tempted with the three temptations you're tempted with. To be relevant, turn the stones into loaves. To be spectacular, throw yourselves down. To be powerful, I will give you all these kingdoms. And there he affirmed God as the only source of his identity. You must worship the Lord your God and serve him alone, is what he said. Solitude is the place of the great struggle and the great encounter. The struggle against the compulsions of the false self and the encounter with the loving God who offers himself as the substance of the new self. Listen, we're doing this. It's a, it's a strange thing to do in a series called Preaching What We Practice because one of the things we do when we gather together is pray. But if your whole life, your whole prayer life is what we do when we gather together, then we're falling short. Those are roots that aren't very deep. In fact, church is not the only place to meet God. Church is where you've learned how to meet God everywhere else. And so, because we as a church are doing a month of prayer, and because our 20s and professionals are leading this charge, I want to encourage you, if you haven't gone to the prayer room, it's in the, uh, on the other side of the gym and what is the international's room, go in there, spend some time. They have done a wonderful job setting that up. It's a very thoughtful. I loved my time in the prayer room. I highly encourage you to do that. We're going to have 24 hours of prayer straight. Those hours will probably get signed up for pretty quick. So if you haven't done that, it's just time with you and God. But whatever it is, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've got to take this seriously. You get to take this seriously. Because God is watching and that's really good news. You realize there is a power available to you to live a different kind of life? So there's a guy named Hudson Taylor, who you probably don't know his name, but he was the founder of the China Inland Mission. And Hudson Taylor, he had boundless energy. People would often ask, what's his secret? He planted so many churches in China in a place that 
Christianity really hadn't gained a lot of ground in. A hundred and something years ago, Hudson Taylor moved his family there. And at one point after he died, his daughter said that she and him were in a tent going to a new village and they had camped out. And she happens to wake up at two in the morning and she sees her dad getting out of his sleeping bag, setting up his lantern and opening his Bible. And she saw him spend two hours just abiding in the love of Jesus. And after he died, she said, people wanted to know what my dad's secret was. That was it. Nobody knew it. Nobody was watching but God. And today, you probably don't even know Hudson Taylor's name. But God does. Do you know, in China today, there are more Christians than there are members of the Communist Party. And so much of that starts with a person we don't even know his name. Listen, when Jesus tells people how to pray, it's in a sermon. And at the end of that sermon, he says, If anyone puts these words of mine into practice, they will be like a person whose house is built on a rock. And when the storm comes, and the storm always comes their house will still be standing. When the storm came for Jesus, His house was still standing. And if you hear these words of Jesus, and you keep on just doing the religious veneer of a prayer life, know how to say the words, know how to do it at mealtime, when the storm comes, and the storm always comes, when it comes... Your house will be like that built on sand. There is a power and a presence you can connect to and a rock you can always stand on. So, Brendan Manning was a Catholic priest and several years ago, he got a call from someone's daughter to come visit her dad because she was, he was in the hospital dying of cancer. So he went to check on the man and he asked him about prayer. And the man said, you know, I've been going to church for a long time, but I never really understood what they were talking about when they were talking about prayer. It always went over my head. But four years ago, I had a friend who said, look, Jesus promises that he's with us. And so it's pretty simple. Just pull up a chair, an empty chair. And I want you to imagine that Jesus is sitting in that chair and have a conversation with him. So I've been doing that for the last four years. And Father Manning said, you know what, I really like that. That's a great way to pray. A couple of weeks later, he got a phone call from that man's daughter. He had passed on. And Brennan Manning was asking, well, how, was he okay in his last few days? And she said, yeah, he was, he was good. You know, he went peacefully. It was just as great as you could go. And then she said, there was one weird thing, though. When they found my dad, he was out of his bed, and his head was resting on an empty chair. That's a house built on a rock. That's the rock that Jesus gives us.